deep suffering, it'll kind of either transfigure you or disfigure you, you know? I have all the empathy in the world for the people it disfigures because I understand the power of trauma and, and, and the ways that can twist us in ways we don't want to be twisted. But, but even those people, I think they'd say, they'd hope there's a way to be transformed or to be transfigured by that experience. And, and that's what I long for for people. This is Down to Earth Conversations, where we hear from ordinary people who are helping to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Kia ora. welcome to another episode of Down to Earth Conversations with me, your host, Andy Dixon. Thanks for joining me again today, and thanks for all of you who have feedback on how much you appreciated the last episode with Punna, talking about parihaka. If you found it informative or even moving, why not share it with someone else who may also find it engaging? Today I have the pleasure of talking to Scotty Reeve. Scotty is the author of the book 21 Elephants and co-hosts the podcast of the same name with the Reverend Spanky Moore, who featured all the way back on episode 12. Scotty is passionate about living in community with others, about caring for those who are neglected or even cast aside by society, and about how the church can make a real difference in the world. We talk about his time working for the youth organisation Zeal, the intentional communities he has lived in, including how they held him in both the great times and the very painful times. And we talk about his role as an Anglican church leader and how he is involved in doing church differently in the Wellington suburb of Brooklyn. It's a powerful and very vulnerable conversation. This is episode 61 of Down to Earth Conversations. Here's Scotty Reeve. Scotty Reeve, welcome to the podcast. Kia ora, Andy. It's cool to finally be here after, um, what is it, long-time listener, first-time caller. Yeah. Cool to be here. Yeah, nice. <laughs> um, for those who don't know you, nor here quit, who are you? Um, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, yeah, tēnā koutou, uh, tēnā koe, uh, nui kia koe. Um, yeah, it's yeah, cool to be here. Uh, what do I do? So I am, uh, or in, in order of priority, I'm a dad of a little girl who's almost two called Luna, and she's um, she's delightful. She went to the Wiggles yesterday, oh, nice. um, and was particularly taken by Wags the dog, um, and um, she, uh, yeah, so she's kind of my main deal. Um, aside from that, I live in a community in Brooklyn, which is about um, oh, 10 minutes walk out of central Wellington. Um, and uh, there's six of us who live in a community here, and we're replanting um, the Anglican church here that was actually the church that my uh, grandparents uh, met in, were oh, married wow. in, um, were buried in. Um, and uh, then alongside that, I have a role in the Anglican diocese here in Wellington, overseeing uh, church planting and pioneer expressions. Yeah, cool. Man, I remember um, going to the Wiggles, we got some tickets through a friend and um like they just drove me so nuts at home that I was expecting to hate it but actually I was yeah. I was really impressed like it was such a good concert. You got swept up in it. Yeah. I mean when you think about the fact that um like you go to a normal concert and they might play a 5 minute song and then yeah may or may not interact with the crowd before starting the next song. Yes. Whereas these guys yes. are doing 30 second songs and then talking to the crowd 
and keeping them yeah, engaged yeah, yeah. for an hour while dancing yeah. and playing their own instruments. And, you know, I was just like, wow, this is, yeah. this is legit. You know, I, I never want to hear another Wiggles song in my life, but this is amazing. You know? <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah they're, they're talented people. I mean, yeah, I didn't get to go. Uh, her mum took her along, um, and apparently she was a bit, um, uh, a little bit reticent to begin with, not sure. But then um, she's obsessed with dogs. So when Wags came out, that was it was all on. Nice. And then at the end of the gig, she ran down to the stage and was spinning in circles. Um, and then they left, and she cried for half an hour. Oh so, wow! Um, <laughs> they won her over, uh, you know. They won yeah. her over. <laughs> nice. Cool. So um. Uh, I've sort of seen you around. I haven't. This is the first time we've actually met, but you know, I've uh, I know people who know you, and I've you know seen your name about. And um, it's really evident that you're passionate about justice, you know, in a range of different ways, and particularly when it comes to those who, you know, are on the outer in society, those who are being pushed to the margins. Um, was that always part of life for you, or was there kind of a moment where you were turned towards that? What what brought that to your attention? Yeah, so um, I a uh, bit of backstory. I I went to church as a little kid with my mum, and uh, when I was about eight or nine, she said, "You can keep going or you can stop going." And I said, "I'll stop going, thank you very much. Um, it's boring." Um, and uh, then oh, a few years later, at about thirteen or fourteen, I came to faith in a an Anglican church, but that had some very charismatic Pentecostal youth leaders who took right. me along to conferences and. I had my kind of first tangible experience of, of the Holy Spirit, which um, was amazing. So there's an element to me where I'm never not a Pentecostal, you yeah. know, that that's kind of, those are my, my spiritual roots. And um, and interestingly, for those of us who kind of, you know, love to crap on the Pentecostals, kind of you look around <laughs> for anyone who's doing anything, most of them were Pentecostal at one stage, yeah. you know. Um, and um, yeah, and so then I um, grew up in this youth group um, and um, through my teen years um but somewhere oh, towards 16 or 17 I started I think to become aware that what the church uh said it was and what it actually was were quite different things um and uh it's yeah I I looked a little while ago I used to have this terrible Christian high school band who were like a rage against the machine <laughs> yeah. kind of knockoff yeah um and um yeah and I um I, I was looking over some of the lyrics which were like we know were was 16 and um you know it was talking about the consumer vultures in the church you know and like yeah, I was well. kind of seeing at 16 or 17 um uh just seeing how co-opted we'd been by kind of I wouldn't have used these words but this kind of neoliberal idea of Christianity and and I remember hearing phrases at the time like um challenging phrases where people would say you know this is an eastern religion right not a western religion and I'm like what yeah. um and then I, I went to uni and um, I um, studied English literature and um, and media, and I did a post-colonial literature paper and um, started to kind of actually realise that colonisation was a thing. Yeah. This is about kind of 19. Um, and then I realised that the same way I'd been taught to talk about my faith to people on the street with a tract in my hand was oddly similar to what had happened in the story of yeah, colonisation. Right of Aotearoa and suddenly it was like ah oh, I'm the bad guy like I'm not the yeah, good well. guy um and uh at the same time as this happened I started volunteering for a youth agency in Wellington called Zeal and and by this point um I was completely done with 
church, I was like, if I if I have to sit out another row of chairs, um, if I have to go to another prayer meeting, if I have to go to another Bible study, like I I just I can't do it. Um, and I started volunteering for Zeal, and I remember though, as a good Pentecostal, I still really craved that um, tangible, miraculous touch of God. Um, and I I would say, you know, as we used to say a lot then, I'm feeling dry. You know, I was feeling dry. And I was volunteering at Zeal one Friday night, and and inevitably a half hour work was running these youth gigs, but the other half was being out on the park out front where there were often kids drinking. And and I remember us looking after this one young girl named Jane, um, and um, we're we're pushing white bread into her in water, trying to sober her up, and um, and it's been going on for a while. And then she looks up at me and she looks in my eyes and then she lurches back and lurches forward and just vomits over me. Um, and, <laughs> oh, um, no. Yeah, but like the, the, the crazy thing was um, that as I kind of sat there in the vomit, I felt a really tangible touch of God's spirit. Um, and it was a kind of a, um, it was a category breaking moment for me. It's like, oh, that thing that I thought needed the band or needed the lights or needed the speaker um it's here in this um the bottom of the stairwell with a couple of my friends looking after the drunk girl nobody knows we're here doing it covered in the the filth and the muck and here is the holy spirit tangibly present and and that really revived my faith and allowed me to belong in christian community again um with with people who had experienced that similar kind of transformation and and so you ended up working there, didn't you, at Zeal? Yeah, so a couple of years later, they um, offered me a job, and um, I stayed with at Zeal um, with a good mate of mine, Brooke Turner, and another good mate, um, Elliot Taylor, a few different different guys, and um, ended up there for almost 10 years in the mm. end. From your time with those, like working for those young people, what's something that you wish that the general public knew that might change how we treat them? It's a really good question. Um, I wonder if um, I'm thinking. I'm thinking of uh, a conversation I had with a counsellor a few years ago. We had a from Zeal. We ended up having a few kids come to live with us, and um, we had a young guy come and join us and have a pretty miraculous um, experience of coming to faith. And we baptised him in the on the south coast on a freezing August day and. He started listening to Hillsong, and we all held, we all bit our tongues, and you know, just let him listen to Hillsong, um, and um, and uh, then eventually, sort of things went a bit rocky, and um, he ended up ripping us off and disappearing overnight. And um, I remember being really, really hurt by that, um, and um, not quite knowing what to do with that, and um, sort of not knowing how to forgive him, not knowing like. Um, yeah, just not knowing where to place that because I guess in a lot of ways I thought we were living this one story of like beautiful transformation and then suddenly you, dis- you discover you're living a different story yeah. or maybe a different, just a part of her story, you know? Um, and, and I think a lot of my kind of 20s youth work and ministry was very much about the heroic story that Scotty was living and um, rather than the story of the people I was serving. So there was a, a change going on there. But I went and sat down with a counsellor because this really like it messed me up a bit for a while, and um, and realising that this in um, mission and ministry was going to be something that would happen over and over again in my life, um, 
the counsellor said to me, oh, what would it look like to imagine a story for why he did that? Um, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Mm. Um, and so I started to think, I'm like, well, maybe he was in debt to a bunch of people who were way scarier than we were. Um, and, um, and we didn't know about that. But maybe he knew that we were the ones that wouldn't kick the shit out of him. Yeah. So it was easier to take from us than it was not to pay those guys back, you know? Um, or maybe um, he um, had never um, started to feel so good about himself, but it felt scary to feel good about himself. And, and, and he, he self-sabotaged the relationships he had before he felt we could kick him out. Who knows? And I won't even know his story, but that kind of um, imaginative process was really helpful for me to cultivate empathy for this person. Um and that's kind of a practice I've tried to do for years since is when there's situations of, of hurt when you're on the end of um, some pretty heinous things happening to you or seeing people go self-destructive to, um, yeah, imagine what might be the empathetic reasons that they might be like that. So it's a long way of answering your question of what do I wish that, um, you know, what do I wish that the New Zealand public or Aotearoa public knew about young people it's probably the same thing I wish they knew about everybody is that we could kind of turn on that empathetic imagination to um, try and trick ourselves into believing the best in people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I totally get that. I, I spent some time working with guys who had come out of prison and mm. um, I was working with one one day and he got pretty worked up. Um, mm. We were unloading a shipping container and, and the the customer, we'd turned up to, to do it and our customer didn't like his customer. And so it was like, mm. we'll just put it on those rubbish pallets over there. And the guy I was working with like took offense at that. Like it was a personal thing about him. Like he's giving us the rubbish pallets cause I'm rubbish. And, and he got all worked mm. up about it, which to me like made no sense at all. But mm. obviously mm. there was a story there and he got, totally. so, he got so worked up. He, he ended up asking me if I wanted to fight. Um, which I politely declined, um, and then he stormed off, and we had a we had kind of a meeting with me and him and his social worker, um, mm. and in, in the prep for it, his social worker was like, "Wow, that is so amazing that he he asked you for a fight, but then didn't follow through on that. That is such amazing progress." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which, like to me, I was just like, "Oh my gosh, he asked me for a fight," you know. But mm, yeah, 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 but yeah, the yeah. social worker can can see the whole story and goes, actually, this guy's making some massive improvements. And you know, if if we just look at the things on surface value, so often we're wrong about you know what's driven someone to do it, or um, oh, you know, why people behave different ways, or you know that we we take things personally when actually it's got nothing to do with us. You know, it's it's everything to do with with how they were raised, or you know trauma that's happened to them or all that kind of stuff so oh and and we do the same eh you know like we flip out and and it's it's irrational and it makes no sense and we would want that same kind of grace I um when I moved up here to Brooklyn I've you know one of the first things I did to um get to know the local neighborhood is I noticed that the the dairy across the road from me um the the guy who runs that hosts a whiskey night every Wednesday and Friday evening just around the counter of the dairy nice so it's about you know um between oh, four and six guys all in their kind of between 60s and 80s um, and um, I kind of managed to push my way in as the 36 year old priest um, 
And it's actually, man, it's been so good for me as someone who lived on Cuba Street and kind of hyper-liberal, you know, kind of PC Wellington. Like, I've never hung out with a group of such racist, sexist, homophobic people in my life. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, like, um, and... Um, and I'm not saying those attitudes are okay. And I often find, you know, gentle ways of challenging those attitudes yeah. and saying things like, oh, I hope my daughter never gets talked to like that and things like that. Um, but, um, but I, you know, right at the moment, there was a ram raid um, next door to the dairy uh, a few days ago. And so these guys are all, you know, listening to News Talk ZB and they're all rocked up about how Jacinda's not doing enough on crime at the moment. Um, and um, I've kind of been doing the same little like gentle process with them as we drink a whiskey of like oh let's imagine what might be the reasons that um someone might commit a crime like that like we know that around here at the moment um there's a lot of young prospects wanting to get patched so we're seeing a lot of dumb crimes happen you know we're seeing a lot of like this ram raid they only took six bottles of liquor from the liquor store you know so it's not about money yeah um you know and there's a lot of that kind of kind of um yeah, prospecting kind of crime going on at the moment and, and asking them, well, what do you think, what kind of world is someone living in that they think a gang is the best possible adventure they could be living with their lives? Yeah. Um, and could we cultivate some... Um, I, I kind of like that phrase, you know, what is it? It's um, it's an explanation, it's not an excuse. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes it's just helpful to go, yeah, that behaviour is inexcusable, but there's an explanation for how people get there. Yeah, you referred to your um like intentional community kind of living uh, mm. that's something that's been a part of your life for a long time in a in a world that's very individualistic that's fairly countercultural you know mm. can you describe a bit of what what that means uh, in terms of you know the way that you live with with a community and you know why has that been something that you've bought into yeah so i've been living in community for probably about uh, 15 or 16 years now um, and that's looked that's looked different at different times with different levels of intentionality but probably some of the key threads of that we would say would be mission, hospitality and prayer um, would be the things we all commit to. So in my current community that looks like uh, uh, Monday to Friday 7am we're downstairs in our chapel praying together um, and um, and that that happens, yeah, that happens every morning. And gradually, we're starting to get people from the local neighbourhood join in on that too, which is really special. Um, and that's our way of um, of starting the day together with Jesus. Um, and you know, it's really, yeah, it's become a really, really powerful part of our rhythm. And, and I've had a rhythm like that for about ten years now. Um, I think the other great thing about a prayer rhythm like that is um, there are times in your life where you just don't want to pray. Um, and sometimes there are times where you're so hurt or so beaten up that you don't have the words, um, and to have a community of people you daily pray with, um, to carry you, um, to the feet of Jesus, you know, kind of like the paralytic who's dropped in through the roof, you know, some mornings I turn up at prayer and it really is my friends lowering me in through the roof. Um, but you know, other days I'm lowering them in through the roof, um, so that, that rhythm of prayer um, has been, yeah, an absolute lifeline to me um, over the last decade. Um, and then we have um, uh, we have ways that rhythms that we roll together during the week. So every Monday night we get together and um, 
as a just the crew live in the house and we explore what's going on for each other and we pray for each other and ask where God might be in the midst of each of those things. Um, and um, and we also, you know, do some uh, sometimes some um, house disputes of like the dishes didn't get done, you know, it's the whole mess. Um, and then um, at least once a week we'll also have uh, have a crew of people around for dinner that we're meeting in the neighbourhood. Um, so it's yeah, it's um, I guess it's it's a lot of it's about putting things in your life that um, uh, you don't want to have to make the decision on. Um, you put these rhythms in, so um, I know that when I'm seventy, I want to be someone who has just lived a generous life, and I want to be someone who's deep in prayer, um, and um, I want to be someone with deep relationships with other people, um, and I'm not all of that yet, but if I have these moments in my week where I don't have to decide if I'm going to be that, I become that in time. Um, so it really is about, you know, it's about it's about formation, us growing together, but also, you know, as Jesus said, they will know you by the love you have for one another so that as, as we grow in depth together and, and knowing one another and in knowing God, that actually um, our community is drawn to the, the warmth of that. And obviously for a long time you were single, um, mm. now you're married with a kid. How has that changed the deal for you? Yeah, well, the, I mean, this is, um, this is, uh, I guess an, another kind of a, a thing that speaks to community, uh, because one of the, the incredibly, or the hardest season of my life is, um, just, just as our child arrived, my wife actually left, um, and, um, while, while we were in community, um, and, uh, for anyone who's been through something like that, it's just the most, it's just the most brutal, most awful stuff you'll ever go through in your life. Um, and there is every, um, there is every reason to be the very worst of yourself. There is every reason to run from God. Um, there is, um, every reason, every coping mechanism you could imagine you want to indulge in just to, to get through what you're going through, but to be with a community of people who keep carrying you to the feet of Jesus and who keep calling out in you who they know you are and who you're going to want to be at the end of that grieving and that healing process um, is, is, such, is such a gift. Um, I think one of the, the great um, sadnesses I think that I see at the moment is so many of us are so anxious, so tired, so worn out, and our response to that is to go and get some me time. Um, mm. And there's a degree to which, you know, people have different personalities, more introverted, more extroverted. Um, but actually, like, connection is so key. Like, not hiding in those moments is so key. Um, you know, the great, um, yeah, the great awfulness of being in Christian leadership when you go through something like I went through is that you have to ring 70 or 80 people and tell them all but then the great beauty of that is that you have 70 or 80 people who want to know um and so it is the two sides of that you know that deep community sometimes it it, it rips your heart out because everybody's seeing it but then at the same time like you do not have to um you do not have to suffer alone um and um yeah people can carry you to the feet of Jesus and um and they can have the faith you can't have. Um, and I guess that's the beauty, you know, we kind of talk about, you know, it's an individualistic culture, and, you know, we, those of us who 
live into residential communities, we we lean against that kind of consumer individualism and live this different way. Um, and we sort of, we commit to that because we believe it's better than what's off on, on offer. But what we sometimes don't talk about is that it's actually better for us too. Mm. Um, and um, I don't know who I would have become had I just been sitting alone at home with my pain. Um, but um, oddly, in the context of community and 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 people helping me to walk close with God and to see that um, God didn't want any of this to happen. God's actually is more gutted than I am. Um, through that, like I can actually look back and go, oh, this this journey actually transformed me, um, you know, and in a way it couldn't have without um, the beauty of, of community constantly pointing to the goodness of God. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't want to paint the picture that, um, you know, I don't want to get into the toxic positivity thing. Um, but, um, but at the same time, I um, do feel that maybe in, for some of us in our overcompensation from kind of toxic positivity, have actually forgotten how good the good news of Jesus is and how powerful that hope can actually be to the worst day of your life. Um, that actually, man, like... Um, God is actually really faithful, you know, and I wouldn't have said that every day of the journey, but, um, uh, you know, the, the sort of testimony of my life in this season has been that, that passage from John 1, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Um, and like, actually there is, um, there is a way for us to walk through the most profound suffering. And I speak, I speak as someone who's had depression and anxiety and, you know, and like, a, you know, um, had some of those other real struggles where I've looked at those toxic positivity narratives. But I do feel that for some of us, we need to do a bit of a recalibration to go, let's be real and authentic, but let's actually acknowledge that the, the, um, the, the story that Jesus invites us to and the, and the power um, of the Holy Spirit actually can... Um, can cause us to be witnesses to hope in the most horrific circumstances. Um, and, and that is actually such hope to the people in our neighborhoods when we can go through hell um, and, um, and really feel that pain, but still ultimately believe that the world and its people are good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's quite different from saying, um, you know, God's brought this thing on you so that you can learn a lesson, you know, which some people go there. It's saying actually this mm. thing happened, but actually through God and you and your community, there's able to be hope and light and goodness, even in the midst of that that hard time. Yeah, and I um, I think that the other thing that really saved me because a phrase that's gone through my head, you know, is, is deep deep suffering. It'll kind of either transfigure you or disfigure you. You yeah. know, it's sort of. And I, I totally, I have all the empathy in the world for the people at Disfigures yeah. um, because I understand yeah, the, the, the power of trauma and, and, yeah. and the ways that can twist us in ways we didn't want to be twisted. But, but even those people, I think they'd say they'd hope there's a way to be transformed or to be transfigured by that experience. And, and that's what I long for for people. Um, yeah, I mean, can I tell you a little, a little story from yeah. that time? Is that, yes, please. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, a few a few months before, um, or actually about a year before it blew up, I was walking up on a beach, Waikawao Bay, in the Coromandel, and uh, it was late at night, I was in my tent, we were camping, and I went down to the beach, and there was just this massive, massive moon out in the sky, just kind of lighting the whole beach and the mountains, it's just, 
just gorgeous. And I was walking down the beach and I really felt the spirit say, um, I'm going to teach you how to walk by moonlight. Um, and I went back to my, my tent and then this happened for three nights. So I kind of would be woken and drawn out to the beach and God would say, I'm going to teach you to walk by moonlight. And I got really frustrated because I know a bunch of really positive people like my co-worker Rose and I, you know, I don't want to walk by moonlight. I want to walk by sunlight, you know, yeah, like yeah. I know some yeah. people are like really, they're really fun, you know, and, um, but I forgot about that for a few months and then as, um, as everything was falling apart, I, uh, it was during lockdown where things started, that first lockdown where things mm. started to go quite bad while we were waiting for our daughter to arrive and I used to go up to this war memorial that looks down over the harbour and I was doing a, um, a centering meditation and at the end of it um, I was just reminded I'm going to teach you to walk by moonlight and I opened my eyes and there's this massive full moon in the sky mm. um, and uh, I thought wow that's like incredible I got back home and I, every now and then I'll read one of Maya Angelou's biographies and I opened this new one to read and the line the first line in the biography said um don't the moon look lonesome shining through the trees? Don't the moon look lonesome shining through the trees? Don't the moon look lonesome when your baby get up to leave? And I was just like, wow. oh my word. Like, um, and then the next day we, um, we had a scan and um, we sent the scan around a few friends. This friend of ours, not a Christian, comes back and she goes, oh my gosh, there's a full moon in your scan. And um, there's this moon in the corner of the scan. And it was just like, um, it really, for me, there'd be these continual um, continual things along the way. There was one night where I was driving and I had to pull over and just had had a, a total panic attack and um, just not able to, to, to deal with what was happening in my life. And, um, and I, I was just just crying and trying to breathe on the side of the car and I looked up and saw the moon and I just felt this peace roll over me um and um yeah and I guess it's you know it's that there was sort of this realization around that time that um you know you go down to the deepest darkest places of the earth you know and there's a fire and you go to the farthest reaches of space and there's a star and there's just there's nowhere there's no darkness where light has not been hidden yeah um, and, and in the midst of like, w- what I hope is the darkest season of my life, I hope, yeah. um, there, um, there was, God had hidden his light in the darkness. Um, and, um, yeah. And so actually the, the one thing my, um, wife and I could agree on, um, was a name for our girl and we named her Luna, um, oh, wow. after the moon. Um, and, um, yeah. And so that really is kind of, you know, become the. Yeah, sort of the testimony of my life over these last two or three years is the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot put it out. And um, yeah, and I, I think there is there is a way that we can hold together just the profound gut-wrenching pain of life um, alongside um, not the belief that God's just going to make it all better all of a sudden, but that the, there is no darkness where there is not um God's light hidden for us to reach out for um, and, and to potentially even be transformed in that suffering. Thanks for sharing vulnerably about that. I think there'll be a lot of people that can relate. Um, and that's something that, you know, I've been really big on is uh, finding the good, even when it doesn't look like there is any, um, and not calling what's bad good, but finding whatever good is there, whether that's just there are people here for me 
while I'm going through this or, or whatever it is. But um, I imagine as well, you know, you've talked about the the love that you felt from the community and, and then the hard times that you've gone through within that space. Uh, I imagine that there was some times of lightness and hilarity as well in a, in a space of living together. Is there anything that kind of comes to mind for you when you think about that on your communal living journey? Yeah, I I I have a punishingly dark sense of humour, um, which I think is comes from my youth work days, you know, where you just, I think a lot of people in people professions, eh, like social workers, cops, nurses and things, sometimes your humour is just absolutely cooked, eh? Um, and, and so I think, um, you know, I think it's, it was even in the early days, right from um, when the marriage broke down, eh, I, would, I would be making dark jokes about it that helped me to pass through it and sometimes enjoying that nobody else knew whether to laugh or not, you know, but it kind of <laughs> yeah. kind of helped me. Um, and um, yeah, yeah. And, um, I mean, yeah, there's been hilarious moments and, um, and yeah, and beautiful moments. Um, a lot of the missional community I'd done historically had been uh, discipleship of young people um, and... Um, but where we are now is a very different kind of neighbourhood. Um, so we, you know, have our, our house here, the six of us, um, and um, then half the week my daughter's a part of that community too, which is, is lovely. Um, but we met a, a lady in her 60s down the road who um, decided she wanted to be part of missional community too, and I just thought that was so beautiful, you know, as to like, you know, that she's, yeah, she's she's not thinking about... um. She's not thinking about going to bed early and, and uh, you know, kind of packing it in for her Christian walk. She's like, yeah, no, I still want to be challenged. I still want to grow. So she often comes and joins us for prayer in the mornings and she'll come and help host people for dinner and she'll often bring a pudding. And the other oh, week awesome. she bought a kind of, a, a, she bought, it's hilarious, eh? she'd been to the chemist and there was a, a 15% discount on all their board games because she got her flu jab and she, I don't know if she quite realised what she bought along, but she turns up with basically this version of Cards Against Humanity. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, but like, I, I, oh man, I, I love that. Um, yeah, I love it when my daughter's in the room and I love it when, when her name's Jan, I love it when she's in the room because I think there's something, um, really powerful, uh, about a, how a society treats its very youngest and its and its oldest, you know, not that sixties your oldest, but I I'm loving the opportunity to see community flex to um, bring together groups of people who largely society is segmented off from one another now. Yeah, you mentioned that you're got a role of archdeacon in the Anglican Church and with that focus mm. on church planting and stuff. Um, firstly, what for those who don't know the the lingo, what's an archdeacon? Oh, I mean, the easiest way to talk about an archdeacon is basically as a regional manager. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> it's just an old English way. So, yeah, you're kind of a department manager for um, for the diocese. Um, so that that means I spend a lot of time connecting with people doing uh, doing expressions of church that don't look like church, um, and and mostly saying to them, "Me too. I know it's hard. I know it's isolating. I know it's lonely. I know nobody gets it." Um, but let's keep going. Let's keep pushing. God's moving. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean that connects to I guess my next question, which was that you you seem like um, in your idea of church planting and in in your idea of what the church could be, you you don't seem very interested in planting another service for people to attend and consume. 
I guess, what is the hope for the communities that, that you were involved in? And, you know, what could the church look like compared to, you know, the let's turn up on a Sunday and go away and have it not have any impact in our lives? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, a few years ago when I started um, leading a young adults congregation in Wellington, the, the it was immediately obvious that there was a little bit of culture change needed and and one of the ways that you change culture is by changing language I think and uh, so one of the phrases we kind of embedded almost as liturgy into the the Sunday service was um, we come together here to tell the stories um, of the week that's gone by and uh, if tonight's not good it's because we didn't live it Um, and um, and actually that this here is about us sharing what happened on the other six days not about filling you up to do, you know, like yeah. it's not. I hate I hate all those metaphors that's like this is the gas station where you get filled up to go out again because I think it also says that there's nothing replenishing or life giving about being in the world or about being Jesus to your neighbour. You know, I can only be replenished by coming to the space that's all about me. <clears throat> and so fundamentally, I think um, probably the most important things of church for me, and when I say church in that sense talking about your Sunday service, would be the sharing of the stories um, and then would be the gathering around the sacraments of um, of, of what Jesus is, has left us to do to remember him. So for me, it would be um, a, a service at its, uh, yeah, at its simplest would look like us sharing the stories and us breaking bread together and remembering what Christ has done for us. Um, but I, um, I, I'm also passionate I'm passionate about the local church, I think. Um, Probably 80% of the people who come to our church plant here, if you ask them why they come to our church, they say, because it's walking distance from my house. And that's a real relief to me because I don't have to be the best show in town. Yeah, cool. They're here because they'll also see me at the chemist or at the liquor store, or at the pub, or at the dairy having a whiskey. A lot of themes of alcohol in there, sorry. Um, a true, true, true Anglican priest. Um, but um, the, um, you know, they're, they're actually here because this is their neighbourhood. And I think in this moment of COVID-19 where people have gone quite a bit more local, I'm, as an Anglican minister, I'm quite excited about the Anglican ecclesiology, um, which has always been about the local geography. Um, and when you're ordained as an Anglican minister, you're not ordained for a congregation, you're ordained for a parish. And a parish has a geography. It's not a group of worshipping people, you know? Like, it's actually, you're actually ordained to serve everyone in that neighbourhood, whether they want you to or not, you know? You're here for all of them when they need you. Um, and... Uh, and that, I think, yeah, for me, that gets me really excited. And, you know, I, it's interesting. I, I don't, I don't, I probably used to get a little bit insecure about some of the bigger flashy things around, you know, feel a bit competitive with the arises or the different things. And, you know, why won't that many people come to my church? But, but now I just, I know what my bread and butter is and, and no one can out local me. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, like, I, you know, I just, all That's I have awesome. to do is stay in my neighborhood and love that neighborhood. Um, and that to me is a profound relief as a Christian leader, um, to just serve well and love my neighborhood well, um, and to teach our community to do that well. So that also means, I guess, another thing that's a little bit different in the way that we do church, aside from the missional community part of it and all of that is that we, um, like we don't try to make an impact anywhere outside our neighborhood. Um, like, so 
people do sometimes come to our church. Well, we've probably got about 20% who come from other neighbourhoods, but they know that if we do anything, we're going to serve Brooklyn. We're not, you know, we're not going anywhere else like this is who we're here for. Um, so examples of that, we set up an op shop and we just started giving away all the profits to other local community groups. So in the last year and a half, we've given away $15,000 to the, you know, the local kindergarten and the community garden and the Montessori school, you know, um, and, um, and I guess that's one of my other big convictions around the church is I think if the church is doing its job, the neighbourhood should really miss us if we leave. Yeah. And I think a lot of churches have closed over the last couple of decades and nobody really noticed because it had kind of shrunk down to five or ten people. Well, they don't notice until you try to knock down the building, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And then all of a sudden, everyone who never came to church feels some bizarre ownership over this building, you know? <laughs> it's really strange. Know all about that being down here in Christchurch. With the, the oh, cathedral and everything. Isn't it so odd? It's yeah. like, you know, like there's no other society you could not belong to and expect to have such a say on what they do with their club rooms, eh? It's just <laughs> very bizarre. Yeah. Um, but um, it's obviously some kind of root, odd, strange seed of Christendom still yeah. left in New Zealand culture where where people feel that. But, um, yeah, I, I do feel with what we're doing here in our neighbourhood that um, if we shut up... Um, people would actually miss us because we make a positive net difference on our community before they come to the service. Yeah, cool. Yeah, and I like that because it's not about what are some ways we can get people in our church building, which is mm. a lot of what I've experienced over the years is how do we get people along to, to church, meaning how do we get mm. them along to a Sunday service? Whereas you're mm. talking about being the church to the people that you encounter and and the people that are part of your community you know, that where you're living and, and making a difference there. And if that leads to more people joining your community, you know, your church community, then great. But mm. if, if not, you're still loving people and doing what you feel like you need to be doing, which is fantastic. You've been involved in a bunch of social enterprise kind of stuff as well, like either you personally or the communities that you've been part of. Uh, do you want to tell mm. us just a little bit about some of those things? You know, what are some things that have kind of grown out of... of this idea of supporting people and being local and, and all of that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I guess um, to take a couple of steps back from that, we're, we're moving on from a time where the church can expect to be paid for what it does um, and um, where, where Christian leaders can expect to have a job or a house or a stipend or, you know, or a, a pension or anything of those things, you know. So the people who are are going to lead the church in post-Christendom, um, uh, are doing it only because they feel called to it, you know, not because it's, it used to, unbelievably, it used to be a good career move for some people. Right. Um, and yeah. so, um, yeah. well. <laughs> just, just a, an awful thing, you know, um, but um, the, the curiosity I always have is, yeah, how do we build sustainability into social good, um, at, at a base level without necessarily needing um, needing philanthropy or, you know, or, or needing the tides or whatever to make it happen. Um, so I guess like some of the work I've, I've done around that is back when I was with Zeal, we set up some, uh, we set up a, an espresso bar in central Wellington in a shipping container called Stories. Um, and what we basically realised is that um, young people who were with us for four or five years in our different programmes would do really well until they left and didn't have a job or education and then they could return straight back to the same, same kind of behaviours they had before. 
But if they had a reason to get up in the morning and a reason to um, uh, to believe that um, they had something to offer, um, that they had some some mastery, then um, it, it would really change their lives. Um, so yeah, we created stories as a, a way to bridge young people into employment with us and then get them up to a level where they could then go and work for someone else. Yeah, cool. And then, and, and then again, we've kind of continued in that kind of spirit here in Brooklyn where um, we actually sold the old church building, which got knocked down, which, um, you know, as, as you can imagine, went really well for us. Um, but we... Um, <laughs> We bought a we bought a corner shop with some apartments above it, and uh, the first thing we did in that shop is we put in a co working space for local creatives and designers and um, small business people because for us we knew we wanted to meet the community, mm. but we needed a revenue engine t- because you know who knows like we didn't there was no one in our church there were four of us yeah. so um, so you know no one's gonna no one's gonna pay for all of this no one's gonna pay the rent so. Um, I guess it's kind of with social enterprise, they talk about, you know, double or triple bottom lines and our kind of double bottom line was we need the money to make it work, but but we also want to make connection. Um, and then we set up a, a little um, boutique op shop and started doing that. So it's it's really great because actually um, the kind of, the church is a bit bigger now, about 30 people and, and people are very generous in how they give to that. Um, but um a whole heap of that money actually just ends up going out our doors because we have a really, um, like, quite a good financial model. Yeah, there's there's some good kind of business savvy running behind the church that also gives us real good engagement with our neighbourhood and means that we're, um, you know, we don't feel pressure to be keep the numbers up at church, you know, to keep the bank, the coffers full. You know, we, um, yeah, we don't have those pressures. Let's talk 21 Elephants before we have to wrap up. Um, that's the name of your book that you released a number of years ago now, um, and then subsequently your podcast that you do alongside the Reverend Spanky Moore, who's um, been a past guest on the podcast as well. What's it got to do with elephants, and why did you write it? Yeah, um, well, I'll start with why did I write it. I wrote it as therapy to begin with, really. It was kind of my way of processing the experience of a decade of youth and community work. Um so I wrote it as yeah, sort of kind of personal therapy, and um, I don't think I ever thought it would actually be something that would be published. But as I went along, a sort of a second motive came in, and that was that uh, a couple of my family members, my sister in particular, read The Irresistible Revolution by Shane Claiborne. Mm. And um, then she called me up, and she's like, Scotty, I understand you now. Um, <laughs> yeah, awesome. Like my family started to get their head around kind of, you know, that um, this probably wouldn't be a phase for me. Um, and uh, and so I started thinking, oh, maybe I can write a book that helps them to kind of understand. Um, yeah, and then I think, um, yeah, as, as that evolved, I started to think, oh, man, this is actually a great way of um, holding some of the stories that formed our communities um, and um, the kind of the charism of our... Actually, in the words of a friend of mine, Elliot Taylor, who you should definitely interview at some point, you know, he said it's that book is kind of like the charism of our early twenties. Like it's kind of the it, it explains a lot of how we became 
who we became. Um, and, um, and it summarizes all those late night conversations that people like me and Elliot would have being angry about the mega church and wanting a more just expression and, you know, all those kind of angsty 20 something questions. And, and I kind of wanted to write a book too, before I was 30 so that, um, I could, um, uh, it wouldn't be tamed by my aging, you know, that, um, because it was interesting, even as I was like editing it towards the end, there were things I'd written years earlier that I kind of wanted to soften. And I'm like, no, don't soften them because there's actually a gift of being early 20s and pissed off. Um, and, um, you know, and there is something as you get older, eh, where you like see the nuance a little bit more. And in some ways that's really good, but in some ways you get more compromised. Yeah, the 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 metaphor around that book, 21 Elephants, is um, a few years ago I was in New York and I... Uh, heard this amazing story of the Brooklyn Bridge there, um, which is yeah just such a cool such a cool bridge to walk over. Forked it a few times, and um, basically there was this amazing story of how it was built. Um, that includes like this incredible story of the world's first like female project engineer Emily Roebling, um, and um, who took over the project when her husband died, um, and just you know typical kind of ultra masculine hubris kind of project day and uh, they built this thing and then nobody believed it was safe and so no one would use it so it just stood there and no one would would go across it and then there was um a circus ringleader at the time pt barnum who um some people will know from that the greatest showman i think hugh jackman plays him in that yeah um Anyway, so he comes to town again full of masculine hubris and he says i'm going to prove it can stand and he has he has these 21 elephants and uh, one of them's called um, Jumbo and he marches them across the bridge. And from that day on, people for some reason thought, well, if if it can support 21 elephants, you know, because an elephant's the heaviest thing in the world, right? Um, then, um, then we'll use it. Um, and 150 years later, it's still standing. And I guess I sort of borrowed that metaphor um, for the things in our adult faith that w- walk across the kind of the structure of our belief and test it and twist it and put weight on it um, but actually it feels like your faith is often dying at the time um, but actually it's kind of a stress test um, that forms it into something that we know can actually carry us into the future yeah so yeah no that was yeah riding 21 elephants was a really really cool cool journey and um, I'm in the middle of another therapy project at the moment that I feel will probably turn into another book eventually nice I look forward to it You've then done, was it four four seasons of the podcast so far? Yeah. You've looked at a whole bunch of different kind of themes. You covered, you know, the the first season was looking at the book itself. Um, you've looked mm. at ancient solutions to modern problems, which just fascinated mm. me as someone who hadn't been part of a, a more traditional church. Um, mm. But yeah, I, you know, really responded to that. Um, Artists and Activists was an incredible series. I I just found every episode of that just captivating. Um, and then more recently, oh. you've you've talked to people who had some pretty dramatic conversion stories. Out of all of that, do you have any kind of favorite favorite moments or you know interviews that kind of really stand out for you? Mm. Um, I probably my favorite episode is the first episode of season three, Artists and Activists, which is the story of Ad Leeson and the Waihopai Three um, and their. Um, tearing down the spy base at Waihopai. I just 
Yeah, it's just such a, you know, I, you're, you're probably like me. I don't go back and listen to my own stuff or read my own stuff very often, but AD is such a gifted storyteller um, and Spanky is so gifted in the editing room um, and just that episode is just so much fun to listen to, to just listen to AD spin that yarn. Um, and um, yeah, that was really cool. Um, I, um, I really enjoyed the opportunity to sit down with Kimbra um, and um, have a chat about, um, yeah, about what propels her art. And that was kind of special because we knew each other what, when I was at Zeal and when she was a teenager and just sort of reconnected and um, and found that um, although we hadn't talked for a long time, we'd been on similar spiritual journeys. So it's nice to find that um, God has led you on similar journeys. And then in particular, um, this latest season we're recording is all talking to people who are close to death or have been close to death. Um, so last week was in Auckland and sat with three people with those experiences, which um, our hope for that series is we know that for many people our age and younger that um, we're often wrapped up in our own lives and often the things we think are important probably aren't that important. Um, and uh, we have a hunch that some of those people facing the end might have a better radar on what really matters, and and we're beginning to see that as we ask them, that they're starting to say things like, why did I work so hard, and why did I talk so much, and why didn't I spend more time telling people I love them? Um, it's, yeah, quite quite beautiful. I'm enjoying that so far. Yeah, awesome. Oh, thanks so much for your time, Scotty, and... Um, for your vulnerability, um, for your commitment to serving people and loving them. Um, yeah, thank you for what you're doing to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Thanks heaps, Andy, for what you bring too. It's, um, again, it's incredible that you managed to pull one of these out every fortnight. I don't know how you do it. You're a machine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> awesome. Hello. I really appreciated Scotty's vulnerability throughout the court at all, and the fact that he just so obviously loves people. And I love that metaphor of walking by moonlight. I've had times in my life when it feels very much like that, and I'm sure some of you do too, times when it seems like everything has gone dark, so you take whatever light you can get until the sun comes out again someday. Thank you, Scotty, for sharing yourself with us. Here is a blessing for you. Scotty, may you always have an imagination that can see the stories behind the actions, that gives people the benefit of the doubt, and can offer love even to those who betray your trust. May your world and your work continue to be upheld by the Jesus you serve, and the belief that the world and its people are inherently good. May the church you lead become world famous in Brooklyn as you outlocal all others, sowing aroha and manakitanga and rangimarie into your community. And may the locals of Brooklyn see the hope for a better future that's inherent in all that you do and know that they can hold on to that hope as well. May your pain be a constant source of empathy for you, filling you with compassion for others who also suffer heartbreak 
And may your vulnerability break down walls that others may erect in their own lives as they try to pretend that they are fine, that they aren't hurting and in need of love. May you always have a community to wrap its arms around you when the night is at its darkest, to carry you when you can't go on, and to walk beside you when you can. May the light of the moon always be a sign to you of hope, a sign that you are never alone, that there is always a way to move forward, and that joy and love can find their way to you, even in the darkness. As Luna grows, may she know that she is a light to the world around her, that she's worth more than all the stars, and that she is loved beyond measure. And lastly, may you know you are seen, you are heard, and you are loved. Thanks to Strawn for the music and Rangi for the karakia. Join me next time when we head into our last couple of episodes for the year, continuing to shine a light on kindness, goodness, and love. Until then, me inoi tato. E to mātou matua i te rangi Kia tapu tō ingoa Kia tau mai tō rangatira tanga Kia mea te tau e pai ai ki runga ki te whenua Kia rite anō ki tō te rangi Humai kia mātou ai nei He taroma mātou mō tēnei rā Muro mātou hara me mātou hoki e muru nei i o te hunga e hara ana kia mātou Aua hoki mātou e kawea kia whakawaia e ngari whakorangia mātou i te kino Amen